mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, terrible a little bit today. Well, we've got this vineyard owner goes out into the marketplace and hires the first group very early in the morning and contracts with them for a daily wage. It's probably about a denarius back then, and they go out. He goes back out again at nine o'clock in the morning and tells uh, another group to go and work in the vineyard. He says, I'll pay what's right. And then he goes out again at noon, he goes out again at three, and then he goes out again at five. And uh, and then just an hour later, um, it's the end of the day, and so he brings them all back in, tells his manager, pay the ones who worked, um, who were the last to go out first. And um, he gives them um, one denarius and then starts paying backwards until the first lot. And the first lot think, well, surely um, we're going to get so much more than that last lot that came out. But they get exactly the same, and they start grumbling amongst themselves and hear the words, you've made them equal to us. And the landowner's response, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius. So first off, it's not a parable about fair employment practices. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. We've got to put it in its context, which if you go back, you will find that Jesus has been talking... Where was I? So he's, he's, he's basically asking what he must do to inherit the kingdom of God. And Jesus says following him is the only thing that's required and some things might hold us back from doing that. In the case of the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. It could be any, any other kind of a thing. And so this parable today about the workers in the vineyard is actually Jesus responding to that question and the answer is nothing. Nobody can do anything to earn their way into eternal life. There is nothing we can do. And that's really what this parable is about because Jesus is speaking about an age-old heresy. It's our natural heresy. And it goes back to what the ones who were employed first say. You've made the others equal to us. Right? Do you hear that? There's that we've worked longer We've done more. We should earn more. But in God's kingdom, in God's kingdom life, that is turned on its head. The age-old heresy has several names. In uh, England, in the 5th century, it was called Pelagianism. It was called that after... um, Sorry got down here. Um, it was called that after a British monk called Pelagius, who, um, this is the Cliff Notes version, there's much more involved in this, but he basically said Adam's sin didn't adhere to the whole of mankind and that we can earn our salvation. If we're good enough, we can earn our salvation. 
And then there became something called semi-Pelagianism that actually said that you can, that God's grace does come into the equation, but really our self-will um, comes in first. And in the Middle Ages, the church had this saying, I won't say it to you in the Latin, but it's basically, do those, to those who do what is within them, God will give his grace. And that's kind of come down to us with that old adage that says God helps those who help themselves. You know, folks, that's not in the Bible. (laughs) Because what does that say to us? It says that if we go out first and we say, God, come along, give us your grace as we go. In other words, if we go out first, then God will, God's grace will then kick in for what we want to do. It's turned God's grace on its head because God's grace is prevenient grace. It goes out ahead of all things. It doesn't kick in afterwards, as it were. See, this, this heresy naturally progresses to the point where We can earn our own way into heaven. We earn our own salvation. What does that mean? We don't need a savior. We don't need a dying and a rising savior. We can do it ourselves. Well, you know, that heresy has continued along through the ages. Here there's a a joke, you know, it always starts off with St. Peter at the pearly gates, right? And this man comes to St. Peter at the pearly gates, and St. Peter says, this is how it works. Uh, By the way, this is not how it works, but in this joke, this is how it works. He says, you need a hundred points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I give you a certain number of points for each item, depending on how good it was. When you reach a hundred points, you get in. Okay, says the man. I was married to the same woman for 50 years, never cheated on her, even in my heart. That's wonderful, says St. Peter. That's worth three points. He's got to make it up to a hundred He's pretty much shot his whole bag at this point in time. But he goes and he says, um, okay, well, um, I attended church all my life, supported its ministry with my tithe and service. Terrific, says St. Peter. That's certainly worth a point. One point, says the man. Well, I started a soup kitchen in my city and worked in a shelter for homeless veterans. Fantastic. That's good for two more points says St. Peter. Two more points. How many points is he up to? And he's got to get up to a hundred. The man cries, at this rate, the only way to get into heaven is by the grace of God. St. Peter smiled, there's your hundred points, come on in. But we still think We can earn our way into heaven. Today's heresy is um, also masquerades in some quarters as Christianity. It's called moralistic, therapeutic, 
deism. And if you've never heard of it, it's okay. Uh, most people haven't. Certainly, a moralistic, therapeutic deist would not ever call themselves that. They would probably call themselves a Christian. The term came from a man called Christian Smith, who at uh, the turn of this century, so 2001 or so, he, um, he did an analysis, he did a survey of, of many, many teenagers for five years. And he interviewed um, hundreds of them and asked them you know, about their spirituality, about their faith. And um, many of them proclaimed to be Christians, but they couldn't actually give him an idea of what it meant to be a Christian. They couldn't verbalize what the Christian faith was about. And so looking at this, he coined this phrase, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And so why is it moralistic? Well, because the belief is that all good people go to heaven when they die, with the understanding that people could be good in and of themselves. In other words, with the right rules and the right methods, that will come about with the right results. There are even Christian preachers on television who are televised who preach that message. The moral life, a good life, will earn your way into heaven. But you see, if you look at that, whose level of goodness is being judged? It's all internal. Well, I think I'm a good person. Now, I know Tom, Dick, and Harry out there, you know, they're not so good. Um, see that judgment coming in? Um, they're actually sinning, but sin doesn't happen in my life because I'm pretty good. You know, I don't do this and I don't do that. So the, it's moralistic thinking that it's goodness in and of itself, in ourselves, that earns our way into heaven. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not one. And the wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's grace went out ahead of us before we even realized we needed saving. And Paul says, if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're not saved by our own goodness. We'll never make it. We're not good enough. Um, I might be the only one here, but I know that within 45 minutes of awaking, I've sinned quite a few times. And then I get on I-4 and it exponentially increases. <laughs> there is no way I'm good 
in and of myself. We are all sinners in need of a saviour. See, if we were good enough, if we just needed to look at the moral teaching of Jesus, which is huge in the Bible, then his death would have been a huge mistake. Right? But Jesus says, it's for this that I came. I came to die for us, for each and every one of us, and to rise again to new life to bring us into that new life. We cannot follow a purely moralistic gospel message. It's therapeutic because it's all about what God can do for me. Now, I'm not saying that therapy is not good. It is needed for people, but we have come to an environment where we think that uh, life revolves around us. We're the center, and so therapy, God is a big therapist for us. We can call on God. We're the center of all that it is, and the goal of life is to be happy rather than the goal of life, is to glorify God. See, it takes God out of the center of life and replaces God with us. But Jesus says, if any would be my disciple, they must take up their cross and follow me. I mean, we don't hear there that the goal of life is to be happy, wealthy, and wise. Right? Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And he says, in this life, you will have sorrow. In this life, there will be hardship. Do not despair. Do not fear. Because I have overcome the world. You see, when we look at a therapeutic world view where we're in the center and it's about our happiness in this short three score year and ten or four score year and ten, it's really a small period of time. See, the Lord looks at eternity. He looks at never-ending life. And if we're looking at just this small portion of happiness, then we're not looking from God's perspective. Paul says, If for this life only we have hoped, we are the most to be pitied. If we hope only for this life, We are the most to be pitied. In Acts, Luke says, in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, says, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. 
Our goal is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the goal of life. That's the goal of this life and life to come. And in his letter to the Romans, Paul says, For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever and ever. We're to kick ourselves off the throne and put God back in his rightful place. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's deistic because there's a belief that God did indeed create the world, but he's not necessarily involved in the day-to-day. He's kind of put it in place and wound up the clock, and he's gone away. Um, But, you know, he's kind of the big butler in the sky, so every once in a while we can call on him and then forget about him again until the next time that we need him. Deism just does not believe in an imminent God, a God who is always with us, that heaven and earth are running parallel realms and that God is very close to us. He is transcendent. He is an all-powerful God, but he is also close to us. On my journeys over my sabbatical, I was up in the northeast of England and still there, there's a great tradition of Celtic spirituality. And there was a man in the 1800s who went into the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, really remote islands, and wrote down prayers that had come through the generations and generations of peoples. And these prayers were about ordinary life. I make this bed in the name of the Father, the Creator. I make this bed in the name of the Son who redeemed me, in the name of the Spirit who sanctifies me. I thread this yarn into this uh, needle and this treadle that I may make this to the glory of God. Every single thing is given over and understood to be covered and encircled by God, that he is not an absent God. He is a God who is very present. Jesus promised, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And they knew that they could call on this God in all of their trials, And that he was a healing God because he was a close God who knew everything about them. Not a God who is distant, who's left us all to run amok. He is still a God who is very present. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. See, God The incarnation, God becoming man, is part, is is the fullness of what it is to know that he is a God with us, Emmanuel, and not a God far off. Of course, the tendency with that is to have another kind of Jesus in my pocket because he's my friend. He's also the transcendent, all-powerful, sovereign God, but he is with us. He is God who is close by. So we're not just left on our own. 
so that like, you know, the old TV show, I Love Genie, where, I think it was called that, where you rub the bottle and the genie appears. Um, you know, we tend to do that with God. God, I'm in, a, in trouble here. Uh, can you come right now? Um, instead of saying, God, what do you want of me this day? When we wake up, you are the God who saw me through the night. You are the one who protected me in the night watches. It is morning and the sun has risen. Lord, I give this day to you. This is your day. Do with me and in me what you have because I trust you for my journey, for my resting places, for all of my life. So that the morning is not, um, oh gosh, I've got that to do. God, help me with that one, will you? You know, rub the genie, oop, puff, he appears, and go on. No, it's God. This is, my life is your life. It's yours. Work through me in this way. For Psalm 139 says, there's nowhere we can flee from God's spirit. There's nowhere we can go from his presence. And then, again in Acts, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stole or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. A deistic spirituality turns inward for its salvation and for its moral center. And it might be characterized by the commonly heard phrase, I think God would want me to be happy so fill in the blank. And oftentimes, it's in the face of sin. I've heard that. I think God would want me to be happy and I've fallen out of love with my wife, but I found this other person and I really love them and God's a a God of love, right? And I think he'd want me to be happy, so I think it's going to be okay. But clearly God says no. It's not about what we think about happiness. It's about God looking at the perspective from eternity and saying, this is what is healthy for you. This is what makes you whole. This is what provides for you in this season for this season this provides strength and wholeness for you hear what Paul says to live is Christ to die is gain see in moralistic therapeutic deism there's no talk of forgiveness because there's no talk of sin it's what someone else does there's no talk of obedience to God's ways no surrender of life no cross to bear no real hope in a recreated world without sin it's basically a human-centered approach to life rather than a God-centered approach it's in other words another self-help doctrine do you know how many shelves there are of books on self-help in bookstores 
there's a huge number, more than anything else in those areas. We're all trying self-help. Moralistic therapeutic deism is just one more self-help, and we're at the center of that. But God is at the center. It's God's grace that comes in, freely given. Grace. It's all grace. It's all God's grace. He says, I'll bring you peace in the middle of turmoil. I'll bring you joy out of tragedy. I'll bring you healing. And I'll bring you eventually into my loving arms. It's about God's grace. You know, in 1994, that's 23 years ago, Newsweek, of all publications, did an article called The Search for the Sacred. And as they went about and interviewed lots of different people, they realized that what had happened is that people were picking and choosing their own spirituality, what felt good to them. One particular interviewee, who at the time was 50, said that for a season she sought inner peace only in nature, through rock climbing in the mountains or hiking in the desert, and that seemed enough. Then she went through a difficult divorce and she began scouting the inner landscape. She started with a metaphysical church uh, near her home in Marin County, California. The next was Native American spiritual practices. Then it was Buddhism. These disparate rituals melded into a personal religion which this woman celebrated as an ever-changing altar in her home. At the time of the interview, her home altar consisted of an angel statue, a small bottle of sacred water, blessed at a women's vigil, a crystal ball, a pyramid, a small brass image of Buddha sitting on a brass leaf, a votive candle, a Hebrew prayer, a tiny Native American basket from the 1850s, and a picture of her most sacred place, a madrone tree near her home. And what comes to mind in hearing that is 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when men will not tolerate sound doctrine, but with itching ears... They will gather around themselves teachers to suit their own desires. See, in moralistic therapeutic deism, which can masquerade as Christianity, it's solely about being good. But the judgment of what is good is purely subjective. It has nothing to do with sin. It has nothing to do with forgiveness or grace and therefore has no need of a dying and a rising Savior. But the parable today says no. It's about grace. It's about God's freely given grace. I can invite who I want, when I want, into the kingdom. And I will never stop inviting, even to the last moment. And that's important to me, because you've heard the story. My mum was not a believer. She'd say to me, Sal, I, I wish I could have your faith. I just don't believe. And the week of her death, we had these wonderful talks. 
And the day before she died, I said, Mummy, it's okay, you know. God's there. And go into Jesus' arms. And she said, I know, Sal. I know. She was the last called in. She's but she's there at the banquet. She's been gathered in. It doesn't matter whether it's at the last moment or first thing in the morning because God's grace is what it's about. We were created through the grace of God. We're made into new creation people through the grace of God. We can overcome sin through God's grace. While we were still sinners, he came to save us. We're made righteous through grace. We receive eternal life through grace. It is all grace. There is nothing we can do in and of ourselves. There is nothing. It's only through grace. And God keeps extending that invitation to grace. He keeps going to the marketplace with a never-ending invitation to join in the kingdom of God life and work. And who are we to question such abundant grace? I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose? With what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? We come as paupers with nothing to offer. Nothing to earn us anything. And yet the landowner in his love gives us riches beyond measure. There is nothing we can do that will increase his grace and love to us. Nothing we can do that will decrease his grace and love to us. It is firmly fixed, immovable. But we have to accept the invitation. That's all that's required of us. And to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He's on the the throne. He's the center of all that is. And we are not. God is God, and he is a God in whom we can place all our trust. Amen.